This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 169th edition of the program. Today is Wednesday, November 21st, and before we get into the show, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal signups, all of which decided to support the show just this last week, and that includes Dana Fairbanks, Daniel Hahn, Gail Posey, Norma Pagan-Rios, and Roger Bryan. So thank you so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the show, you can visit humanistreport.com support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report so on today's episode nancy pelosi gives republicans a gift in the form of procedural hurdles that will stop progressive policies from getting passed and at the same time she's picking up support from progressives because if you can believe it the alternative to pelosi may actually be worse for progressives and while we're on the subject of nancy pelosi we'll talk about Whoopi goldberg's defense of her and also bernie sanders talks 2020 with al sharpton on msnbc and he's also teaming up with ro Khanna to take on big pharma some Democrats are whining about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's tactics yet again, and Fox News is still grasping for straws in an attempt to attack Ocasio-Cortez. Ohio introduces a cartoonishly draconian anti-abortion bill. Ivanka Trump may be guilty of doing exactly what Hillary Clinton did as Secretary of State. And additionally, we'll talk about more stories on the show as well. As you can tell, usually we do these shows on Thursdays, but since tomorrow is Thanksgiving, I'm filming on Wednesday. So hopefully you guys have a nice little break and, you know, are able to spend time with your family. If you don't uh, celebrate Thanksgiving, just just take some R&R time. I think that we all need to rest in order to be re-energized for 2020. But nonetheless, let's go ahead and get into the show. I hope you guys enjoy the program. If you're one of the people who are perplexed by Donald Trump's tweet in support of Nancy Pelosi and wondering why he would openly back her and then also offer some Republican votes in the event she doesn't have enough Democratic votes to become Speaker, well, wonder no more because we've got a story that demonstrates exactly why Republicans would benefit from Nancy Pelosi becoming the speaker again. So as Jake Johnson of Common Dreams explains, nearly three quarters of the American public and a historic number of Democratic lawmakers support Medicare for all, but the House Democratic leadership is considering using its newly won majority to impose a rule that would recklessly betray the grassroots forces that put them in power by making single-payer and other progressive priorities impossible to enact. According to a list of Democratic proposals obtained by the Washington Post, House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, who is currently fighting back against efforts to prevent her from becoming House Speaker, is pushing for a rule that would require a three-fifths supermajority to raise individual income taxes on the lowest earning 80% of taxpayers. Though the proposed rule is framed as an effort to protect the financial well-being of middle-class Americans, Eric Levitz of New York Magazine pointed out 
that while progressives are committed to increasing the discretionary income of the bottom 80%, that does not necessarily mean keeping their tax rates frozen at historically low levels. A bill that required those households to pay a new, smaller monthly sum to the government so as to fund a single-payer system that would actually reduce their cost of living by delivering radically cheaper healthcare services could hardly be called regressive, Levitz notes. And the same can be said for legislation establishing universal childcare, paid family leave, or any other program aimed at easing the middle class's financial burdens. Equating support for middle class families with opposition to increasing their tax rates is a conservative project which Democrats have no business advancing, Levitz said. If the party wishes to establish structural barriers to policies that would hurt the middle class, why not require a three-fifths majority to cut Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security. Combined with Pelosi's expressed commitment to reviving the economically illiterate PAYGO rule, which would require that all new spending be offset by spending cuts or tax hikes, the proposed tax restriction would completely undercut Medicare for All, free public college, a federal jobs guarantee, and other ambitious left-wing policies by dramatically restricting the party's ability to raise revenue and effectively handing Republicans the power to block progressive legislation. So this is complicated, but I need you to understand why this is a gift to Republicans. In order to get policies like Medicare for All, we do need a monthly income tax increase to fully fund it. But if you pass this arbitrary rule saying you're not allowed to raise taxes on income earners in the bottom 80%, then what does that mean? It means that we're not able to get Medicare for all. As the article states, it kneecaps progressive policy priorities because it makes it impossible to pass them. And this, in addition with PAYGO, it's very clear that Nancy Pelosi is working with Republicans to undermine progressive policy ideas. So if you're wondering why Republicans want Nancy Pelosi to be speaker, why it would behoove Trump, of all people, to have Pelosi become speaker again, this is your answer right here. It's because she's giving them a gigantic gift. So if you're a progressive, then you already know that people within our community vocalized our opposition to Nancy Pelosi becoming House Speaker again, because she just doesn't represent the people. She's not progressive. She's too conservative to lead what should be a left-leaning party. She doesn't support Medicare for All. She's already calling for bipartisanship with Republicans who are fascists. Uh, she is proposing a tax rule that would kneecap the progressive agenda. So there's a number of reasons why we should all be against Nancy Pelosi becoming the Speaker of the House again. However, if you've been following mainstream media and what centrist Democratic Party loyalists are saying about our opposition to Nancy Pelosi... They almost always misrepresent our view and why we think Nancy Pelosi shouldn't become speaker. And they tend to chalk this up to age and gender. And one of the worst examples that we saw of this came from The View when Whoopi Goldberg decided to condescendingly scold progressives for not supporting Pelosi because not only are we just being ageist and sexist, but she's also saying that we haven't done our homework because if we clearly did our homework, then presumably we'd know 
why Nancy Pelosi is so wonderful and why everyone is singing her praise. Reportedly, some of the newly elected female Democrats are part of a so-called pink wave who are questioning whether Nancy Pelosi should be Speaker of the House. Mm. Uh, they say, you know, she, she's too old, she should step aside and let them do fun. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's making this argument. I haven't heard a single progressive make this argument. If you'll recall, just a couple of years ago, we were vocally backing a presidential candidate who's around a thousand years old, Bernie Sanders. So if you think that age is something that we're considering when it comes to Speaker of the House or any politician for that matter, I couldn't care less about age. All that I want is someone, anyone who's liberal, who's going to fight for progressive values. And Nancy Pelosi has shown time and again that she's not that person. Now, I've been backing Barbara Lee. Barbara Lee is also older. She's 72, just six years younger than Nancy Pelosi. And she's also a woman. Why would progressives back someone like Barbara Lee if we were basing our criticism of Nancy Pelosi exclusively on age and gender? I mean, that's just preposterous. It's a straw man. And it shows that Whoopi Goldberg doesn't understand why justice Democrats and people like myself, anti-Pelosi progressives, aren't supporting her. So she's going to go into her main rant here, and she's going to condescendingly describe your position to you and tell you why you're wrong and also ignorant. If you're going to be the new folks, you also need to do your homework. Let's take it, for example, a Nancy Pelosi or a Dianne Feinstein, two women mm-hmm. battling and still in at work, right. battling their male counterparts on both sides, Okay. Nancy Pelosi got most of that Obama bill through. Mm -hmm. She fought the Obamacare. Obamacare. Mm -hmm. She has been on the side of right for most of the time she's been in. The same with Dianne Feinstein and the same with a whole bunch of these folks who have gotten older. You know what aged them? Fighting for the right (laughs) to be an American 100%. So if you're going to represent us, because a lot of folks got in and, you know, some of y'all calling yourselves, uh, uh, what was it? It's something crazy. Not crazy, but it really kind of freaked me out. Justice Democrats. So I know. So let me just be really clear, because you kind of on your site, you kind of take a little punch at people. So my question is this, you know, uh, Are you saying that other Democrats who've been fighting for 25, 30 years aren't justice Democrats? You you think that, uh, I don't know who, let's name a couple of people who've been fighting. John Conyers, who's not there anymore. And, and, yeah, I mean, you need the experience. You need experience to handle all this stuff. And if you don't have it, sit back and learn some stuff and then take over. But you can't come in and pee all over everything and say, you, it's, it's done. That was a disgrace. I mean, in a way, it's funny because she made a complete fool of herself. She said, if you're going to be the new folks, you also need to do your homework. So she claims we're ignorant while demonstrating just how ignorant she is in actuality. And it's funny because it's such a joke. But at the same time, this really is problematic because she's spreading misinformation, right? She's saying that all opposition to Nancy Pelosi is based exclusively on ageism and sexism when again that couldn't be further from the truth now as she scolds us and says how we need to do our homework she demonstrates how fundamentally ignorant of politics in general she is because she states Nancy Pelosi got most of that 
that Obama bill through. Really? <laughs> You're going to tell us how ignorant we are, but you can't even name the fucking bill? The one accomplishment that you could think of that Nancy Pelosi got through? Really? You can't name the bill? And somebody helped her out and said Obamacare. No, let her go ahead and um, explain to us why she thinks Nancy Pelosi is an asset to progressives and the left, broadly speaking. That, that Obama bill. Yes, she was able to effectively whip up enough votes to pass right-wing healthcare reform. Wow, what an accomplishment. Name just one more accomplishment, Whoopi, of Nancy Pelosi. Just one. Just name one. One. That's all I'm asking for. <laughs> Should I keep waiting? <laughs> that Obama bill through... Mm -hmm. Maybe, Whoopi, before you start scolding people for not doing their homework, next time before you go on air, maybe just do a quick five-second Google search to figure out what the name of the legislation is that you're going to credit her for passing. And while you're at it, maybe spend a little bit more time doing your homework when it comes to what the Affordable Care Act actually entails and why it's right-wing healthcare reform that was cooked up by the Heritage Foundation. Now, she also name-dropped Justice Democrats, and she posed a question to them. She said, Are you saying Democrats who've been fighting for 25, 30 years aren't Justice Democrats? Uh, yeah. Precisely. They're not Justice Democrats. They Meaning that they literally aren't a part of that organization that is aiming to primary corporate Democrats, but they're also not justice Democrats just in the sense of the word justice because they are against justice. Now, you may disagree with that and not see what we're talking about, Whoopi, because you're a multimillionaire, but believe it or not, we're actually opposed to Pelosi because she's not fighting for us. She's not endorsing policy ideas like Medicare for All, and as a result, people are dying because she refuses to act. For those of us who aren't rich, who don't have multiple mansions, Whoopi, if we need a certain medical procedure that our insurance company refuses to pay for, some of us will just have to go without it, meaning that people will die as a result, or they may go bankrupt as a result, or they may have insurance but see a doctor that's outside of their network and then go bankrupt as a result of a gigantic medical bill. Not supporting Medicare for All is a death sentence for thousands of Americans every single year. Now, you probably don't think about the consequences of policies like this. You probably don't think that Nancy Pelosi's unwillingness to support a policy that 70% of the country wants is that important, you know, and you don't think about this while you rich explain to us why we should support Nancy Pelosi, but her unwillingness to support Medicare for All means that she, by definition, is not in favor of justice, and she certainly isn't a justice Democrat. If she's okay, Okay with a healthcare system where people die and go bankrupt every single year due to a lack of health insurance, that's pretty goddamn unjust if you ask me, Whoopi. But please continue explaining to us just how wonderful Nancy Pelosi is. It's because we didn't do our homework. It's not because you're rich and everything seems lovely as long as Democrats are in office. We actually have to fight for specific policies. Whoopi, you'll be okay no matter what, if a Democrat's in charge, if a Republican is in charge, because you are insulated by millions upon millions of dollars. Normal Americans do not have that privilege, Whoopi. So while you rich Blaine, maybe just take the time to learn why we're against Nancy Pelosi, if you could even fathom people being against her, right? Now, she actually names some other Democrats. She cites John Conyers. He's not even in Congress anymore, but good job. And furthermore, 
He's not even someone who we were opposed to. We actually supported John Conyers because he was the author of H.R. 676, which is Medicare for All. But then she tries to name other Democrats, and she stumbled again until somebody helped her out and named Steny Hoyer. <laughs> Steny Hoyer, of all people, that's who they're going to cite as a good example of someone who's fighting for justice? Are you fucking joking? You mean the same Steny Hoyer who tried to bully a progressive out of a Democratic Party primary in order to help the corporate-friendly Democrat win? Are we talking about the same Steny Hoyer that takes hundreds of thousands of dollars in PAC money from insurance companies, big pharma, healthcare professionals, HMOs, hospitals? Is that the Steny Hoyer who you're referring to there? See, I personally wouldn't, you know, um, refer to him as a justice Democrat either, but maybe that's just me. Finally, she states, quote, you need the experience. You need experience to handle all of this stuff. If you don't have it, sit back and learn some stuff and then take over. But you can't come in and pee all over everything. Right. Well, in anticipation of that exact argument, it's why progressives almost immediately backed a Democrat in the House with two decades of experience. Her name is Barbara Lee. But Whoopi doesn't get that. She just thinks that this is all about age and gender, and that's why she's so outraged. And look, to be fair to Whoopi, I'd be outraged too if I thought that somebody was against Nancy Pelosi or any Democrat, let's say Bernie Sanders, specifically because of his age. But the problem is she's building her outrage off of a straw man that she created. What if she just listened to us and we ex and allowed us to explain our position rather than explaining it to us and, you know, implying that we're dumb and didn't do our homework, maybe she would think that we're actually reasonable. But maybe that's not the case, actually, because somebody kind of pushed back. She received a little bit of, of um, pushback from the other panelists, and it went in one ear and out the other. I frankly think it's healthy to have these type of challenges. I think this is a, dem a democratic vote. Yes. Nobody's appointed. Mm -hmm. It's no. not a monarchy. But then, Let her don't, earn but their don't, but then yeah. don't do what you are pissed at other people for doing. Don't be sexist. Don't be ageist. You mean the, you know? the Democrats well, that are yeah. coming out against you? know, because them. these folks have been working their behinds off to make sure of the same things you want to fight for. But the woman who wants to, one of the women who's that. challenging her is a 60-something-year-old woman. It's not really about her age. No, but as Marcia I said, Fudge, if, you're reading, if yeah. you're reading the Justice Democrats thing, and they're talking about yeah. gathering all these people to get rid of the old guard, uh, guard yeah. who, who have not been fighting for the justice, they've been paying money, you know, getting money for the big... It's like, who are you talking about? Well, she, she's tough, too. I mean, you need somebody tough like her. She you need somebody... Not, you know, she's not afraid of the rain, like some people. She knows how to raise <laughs> money. She knows how to rally. You know, she, she'll saying, go out in the rain and I'm just fight. saying, do a health... I don't mind a healthy right. fight, mm -hmm. but don't make it about... Because you're old, you can't do this anymore. Yeah. Or because you're, you know, you're not nobody what I Nobody said that to Mitch McConnell or Chuck No, Kimmel. they didn't. Nobody has, you know, nobody just pooed on them. So according to her, the same people who are poo-pooing Nancy Pelosi aren't poo-pooing Mitch McConnell. Hmm. Go fuck, fuck yourself, fuck yourself Mitch. Mitch. I hope that I you hope never that have, have another, another peaceful, peaceful meal, meal in, public in public again, again because, because of because all of that all you've, that been, you've doing been doing to ruin, to ruin this, country. this country. Oh, right. That's complete horseshit. Now, Whoopi said, quote, don't be sexist, don't be ageist. <sighs> now, finally, somebody on the, on the panel, Joy Behar, said what I was screaming at the television when I watched this. It's not about sexism or ageism. 
you know, who's challenged the the woman who's challenging her is a sixty-something-year-old woman. It's not really about her age. But Whoopi was not convinced at that point and said, "Well, if you look to the Justice Democrats platform, they're trying to gather people to quote get rid of the old guard." That's her evidence that this is all about age. That phrase, the old guard. So her outrage is based on a fundamental misunderstanding of what that term means. If you go to the dictionary definition, the old guard is, quote, the original or longstanding members of a group or party, especially ones who are unwilling to accept change or new ideas. So in a nutshell, this entire segment can be summarized with the following title. Whoopi Goldberg does not know what old guard means. <laughs> she thinks that old guard is a literal reference to old age. And then, again, to top things off, the underlying assumption baked into this segment was that we're the ones who are ignorant. Whoopi, stop risk-planning and do your homework because you just made a fool of yourself. And again, it would be funny. I would laugh at this if it wasn't so harmful because you're spreading misinformation. You're a host of a television program that has what millions of viewers each day. You have a very wide reach. So what you're communicating to all of your viewers is that anyone who's opposed to Nancy Pelosi must be opposed because she's old and is a woman when that couldn't be further from the truth. So this is harmful. Now, what I wish would have happened was that people like Joy Behar, who were actually right to correct her, would have held strong because she said, oh, well, you know, Nancy Pelosi is a fighter. So she she basically said, yeah, you know, I do think Nancy Pelosi should be House Speaker as well. But the problem is Nancy Pelosi is not a fighter. She's a fighter for the Republicans, but I don't think that that's what you're referring to. She is in favor of PAYGO. She's in favor of a tax rule that would kneecap progressive policy priorities. She was endorsed by Donald Trump to be speaker again because they love running against her because that's what helps them get elected when she oversaw the loss of more than a thousand seats in legislatures across the country. Oh, and I almost forgot that right after they won in her victory speech, she was already conceding before the battle began. She said, oh, well, we need to strive for bipartisanship. I mean, look, if you want to make the country a better place, then you actually need to listen to your opponents, especially if they're opponents on your side who agree with you, I'm assuming, on the policy substance. But instead, individuals on the panel, like Whoopi Goldberg, namely, but others too, all they could say was, oh, well, it's about sexism and ageism. Now, for the ones who tried to make an argument based on substance, one person chimed in and she said, oh, well, she's also a great fundraiser. Yeah, that's part of the problem. Keeping the party corrupt and making sure that other Democrats become corrupt as she raises money from special interests for them as well, that's not helping any of us. The reason why Democrats were wiped out across the country over the last eight years is because the party moved away from its roots. They became too corporatist. They became too corrupt. And they stopped representing us in order to represent special interests and multinational corporations. But again, you know, I don't know why I am even trying to explain this to them because these are all rich people. 
Again, they are insulated from any problems that normal Americans deal with, so they can't even fathom why anyone would be opposed to Nancy Pelosi. Most people in D.C. and in the mainstream media probably think that we're opposed to her, or most people are opposed to her, not only because she's uh, old and a woman, but because she's too liberal. That's what a lot of people actually think. No, she's too conservative. She's far too conservative, and we're done. So, no, Nancy Pelosi has got to go, and regardless of how stupid you think we are when you should actually be doing your fucking homework, Whoopi, you need to learn that not everything is about age or sex. It's about policy. That's what progressives care about. So, rather than talking down to us and scolding us and rich-splaining, you need to actually just listen for once. But the problem is that people in the establishment and in that DC bubble, they don't want to listen to what us peasants have to say. So I'm going to make it easier for them. I'm actually going to play a clip of someone from within the establishment explaining why Nancy Pelosi may not be the best choice. This individual is Marcia Fudge, who is considering a run for speaker against Nancy Pelosi. Now, she may not be too great, uh, she did not co-sponsor the Equality Act. She's one of two Democrats. The only other person is Dan Lipinski, who was very conservative, who's against abortion. And her reasoning is that, oh, well, you know, this doesn't go far enough. That's not a good enough reason. She's also a very establishment-oriented Democrat. But is she still preferable to Nancy Pelosi? Yes, she supports Medicare for All, and she has agreed to get on board with some progressive policy ideas. So she's not ideal. She's not Barbara Lee, but she's a step in the right direction. Now, since maybe they're more inclined to listen to someone from within the, establish the establishment than me, here's a clip of Marcia Fudge explaining that if you're going to give Nancy Pelosi credit for all of the wonderful things that she's supposedly done, then you can't choose to selectively ignore all of the bad things about Nancy Pelosi's record as well. And I'll leave you with this. And, and what do you say to um, sort of the critics of, of a bid that you might launch at, who say, you know, Nancy Pelosi was the majority leader in the last Congress and um, she helped the Democrats win the majority in this Congress. She deserves to be our speaker. What do you say to that? I helped the majority too, as have most of us. I traveled the country, I raised money, I contributed money, certainly not as much as she, but she didn't do this by herself. She also was the person who over the last eight years lost seats. It's one thing to give people credit for winning if you also make them responsible for losing. And so I would say to you this, all of us are happy that we're in the majority. I think that she has been a very good speaker. I think that she is well suited to do what she does. I just think that if we run on change, then we need change. And we should not stand with the status quo. I also think that as I continue to hear not only her, but other people talk about this is the most diverse Congress we've ever had, then our leadership should be diverse as well. We can't just talk the talk, we have to walk the walk too. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, We'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly dose of stupidity. CNN cannot project that Democrats will win the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives. Thanks to you, we owned the ground. Thanks to you. 
Don't help Nancy Pelosi if she needs some votes. She may need some votes. I will perform a wonderful service for her. I like her. Can you believe it? I like Nancy Pelosi. I mean, she's tough and she's smart, but she deserves to be speaker. But I don't imagine she'd need too many. But whatever number of votes she needs, if it's 50 or 10 or 2 or 1, she's got them from me, automatic. So tell her opposition they're wasting their time. I do not think our opponents should select the leaders of our party. <clears throat> I do not think our opponents <clears throat> should select <clears throat> the leaders of our party. I do not think our opponents should select the leaders of our party. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, we got them. Yeah. <laughs> You're so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. Nancy Pelosi is no friend to progressives. She is an obstacle to progress because she doesn't just not support progressive policies like Medicare for all or tuition free public college, but she's either wittingly or unwittingly aligning with Republicans in order to make sure that those policies don't get passed. She's endorsing a rule known as PAYGO. She's supporting a tax rule that makes it procedurally impossible for progressive legislation to get passed. So there's a ton of problems with Nancy Pelosi. However, we're in this situation where going into the 2019 and 2020 congressional session, it seems as if we're stuck with Nancy Pelosi. And I hate to say it, I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but no other left-wing challenger has emerged to contest that seat. And look, Barbara Lee would have made an excellent speaker, but unfortunately for all of us, she's not running to be speaker. She's running for caucus chair. Now that's important, and we should still support her because as caucus chair, perhaps one day she could be in a position to become speaker. But for now... It's just not something that she's interested in. And individuals like Marcia Fudge, who are considering a challenge to Nancy Pelosi, they seem really questionable because even if she might technically be more liberal, economically speaking, she's arguably more socially conservative. And she also doesn't think that campaign finance reform should be a priority for Democrats in 2019. So I don't necessarily know that Marcia Fudge would be preferable to Nancy Pelosi. And as a result, it doesn't look like Marcia Fudge is going to be able to muster up the support needed to be speaker. So with that being said, it seems like Nancy Pelosi is poised to become speaker now for the 150th time. <laughs> and it's just, it's really, it's demoralizing, right? Because there was all this progressive momentum that carried Democrats to victory. And you would think that in response to the call for change from across America, Democrats would refuse to go with someone like Nancy Pelosi again. But unfortunately, that doesn't look like it's going to be the case. Now, with that being said, 
there's two sides within the Democratic Party that have emerged. There's one side of House Democrats that are pledging to oppose Nancy Pelosi's bid to be Speaker again on the House floor. And 16 of these Democrats have actually signed a letter stating their intent to oppose her. And there's also three other House Democrats that have stated their intent to oppose her, even if they haven't signed onto the letter. So in the event these 19 Democrats hold strong, then that actually does pose a serious threat to Nancy Pelosi's chances of retaking the role of Speaker again. But there's a catch. These individuals, these 19 House Democrats who are planning to oppose Nancy Pelosi, are opposing her for all the wrong reasons. Because these are not progressive Democrats. These are actually corporate Democrats who are opposing Nancy Pelosi because she's not conservative enough. Not even kidding. If you could believe that, because that's... That's almost insane to fathom that someone would think that she's too liberal. The problem is that she's too conservative. But nonetheless, these 19 Democrats are opposing Nancy Pelosi because they want the individual who's next in line to become speaker. And that person is Steny Hoyer, who I don't even have to tell you about, would be exponentially worse for progressives. Because if you thought that Nancy Pelosi was bad who is endorsing Pago and is against progressive policy ideas, Steny Hoyer is 10 times worse than Nancy Pelosi. So I can't stress to you enough, we absolutely should do everything in our power to make sure that Steny Hoyer not only fails to become the speaker ever, but that we oust him so he's never in a position to become speaker because that is honestly the worst case scenario. So instinctively, it may seem as if progressives should theoretically align with these 19 Democrats to oppose Nancy Pelosi, but in doing so, they risk getting Steny Hoyer. Now, on the other side of the aisle, there are some Democrats who are pledging support to Nancy Pelosi, and this includes progressive Democrats such as Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Ilhan Omar, and Deb Holland. And additionally, it seems as if Ocasio-Cortez will support Pelosi as well because she signaled support for Pelosi. And on one hand, it is genuinely disappointing to see progressives sign a letter stating their support for Nancy Pelosi because part of me thinks, why do this? Why surrender this early? Why not try to extract even more concessions from Nancy Pelosi and maybe demand that she abandon Pego and the tax rule she's proposing that kneecaps the progressive agenda? Because... It is the case that they're supporting her because she is promising them important committee assignments, which really is important. But at the same time, it's still early. The vote to be House Speaker, the official vote, mind you, irrespective of the nomination um, process, which will take place towards the end of this month, there's still the official vote in January. So why surrender this early? Why not try to put up a fight a little bit longer? Because it's obvious that these rules, these conservative rules that Nancy Pelosi is proposing at a minimum, are an olive branch to all of these right-wing Democrats who think that she's too liberal. But they're already planning to oppose her. So why not, if you're a progressive, why not use that as leverage against Pelosi and her opponents and force her to abandon these harmful procedural hurdles before endorsing her? Because they're not going to support her. So if they're not going to support her, why not explain to Pelosi that you have our support? So why would you 
give concessions to these right-wing Democrats who are already saying they're going to oppose you. So that's just what I would do. I would not have surrendered this early. But at the same time, I don't know about the internal dynamics that are going on behind the scenes. I don't know if Nancy Pelosi said, you're only going to get this committee appointment if you endorse me immediately. So I, I have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. But what I do know is that this is basically a lose-lose situation for progressive Democrats. They can either oppose Pelosi and stand on principle, but maybe be worse off, or they can support Pelosi and endorse Pelosi and get some type of concession from her. And it does seem as if she's willing to give them committee assignments. So, I mean, I understand their reasoning for supporting Nancy Pelosi, but I just wish that they wouldn't try to convince us that she's an ally in the process. So, for example, I was disappointed to see that Ilhan Omar released a statement praising Nancy Pelosi. I mean, you could just begrudgingly endorse her because we know that that's what you feel as if you have to do without praising her as the second coming of Christ or the best thing since sliced bread because we all know that Nancy Pelosi isn't a true progressive. She's a corporate Democrat. She's a prototypical quintessential example of a corporate Democrat. So we don't have to pretend as if she's anything otherwise. We don't have to pretend as if this isn't an unholy alliance that you made or, you know, a deal with the devil. We don't have to pretend as if that's not the case. You can just say, I'm going to vote for Nancy Pelosi because I support her leadership, plain and simple. You don't have to pretend as if She's anything other than that. But I do want to explain to you because I was really frustrated with progressives who pledged to support Nancy Pelosi. But at the same time, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes because when you do that, when you try to be empathetic of their situation, it really is lose-lose for them. And I put together this graphic that kind of describes why the situation is so awful. So as you can see, there are four quadrants in total, and I'm calling this graphic the progressive Pelosi dilemma, because no matter the outcome here, the end result will essentially yield a net loss for progressives. So on one hand, if Pelosi wins, which is the more likely scenario, progressives who supported Pelosi will at least get some concessions, hopefully, from Pelosi in the form of important committee appointments and maybe some policy concessions. And these concessions will only be given to them, obviously, if they back Nancy Pelosi. However, if they reject Nancy Pelosi and she ends up becoming speaker again anyway, then they end up getting nothing. So they get no concessions, they get no committee appointments, nothing. So in the likely event that Pelosi does win, and it seems like this will in fact be the case, unfortunately, progressives likely felt compelled to support her because they see value in backing her at this time in order to empower themselves to pursue a very specific policy agenda that we all support in spite of the plethora of issues with Nancy Pelosi. However, if Nancy Pelosi loses, that's inherently good news because she's no friend to progressives, but since no one on the left of Pelosi has stepped up, that likely means Pelosi could lose to someone who's worse, like Steny Hoyer, as I mentioned. And in this situation, progressives who pledged support for Pelosi would be in the worst possible predicament if she lost, because by supporting Pelosi, they'll likely piss off the new incoming speaker, and they wouldn't get any committee appointments. But on the other hand, if they reject Pelosi and she also loses to st someone like Steny Hoyer, they wouldn't get any concessions, but they also wouldn't necessarily piss off the next speaker. But at the same time, if that speaker is Steny Hoyer, 
he's not going to be receptive to progressive policy goals anyway, and he probably wouldn't assign them to committee appointments anyway. So, I mean, it, it, there's no winning situation. Hopefully, this graphic demonstrates that. There's, there's no way for them to win. So, I get it. I see where they're coming from. I don't want you to get the impression that I feel disenfranchised by these progressives. I don't want you to think that they're selling out. They're in a shitty predicament. We're all in a shitty predicament. And really, they feel as if they have no choice but to back Nancy Pelosi. Now, with that being said, as I stated earlier, do they have to fawn over her and praise her in their endorsements and reluctant support of Pelosi? No. And part of me thinks that maybe because progressive Democrats in the House were so quick to get behind Pelosi, that that may have discouraged a potential challenger to the left of Pelosi from emerging because since they didn't think they'd have enough support from progressives to become speaker since everyone already endorsed Pelosi just two weeks after the election, maybe they felt as if they had nothing to gain and everything to lose by trying to challenge Pelosi because then that could potentially make them vulnerable to Pelosi stripping them of committee assignments. So either way, there's so much to consider. And again, I don't know the internal dynamic between these newly elected and incumbent House progressive Democrats and Nancy Pelosi. I don't know the stipulations of her concessions. I don't know everything. We don't have all of the information. So this is an imperfect analysis because I can't, I can't possibly give you a perfect strategy here when we don't have all the information. So with that being said, knowing what we know and as little details as we have to work with here. In essence, we're totally fucked. <laughs> I, I don't know um, how else to explain it. We desperately needed to get rid of Nancy Pelosi, and it just seems as if that's not an option. Because the group who is in the best position to oust Nancy Pelosi, they want to replace her with Steny Hoyer. So, and... Mind you, this isn't something that they've stated explicitly, but Steny Hoyer is next in line. These are right-wing Democrats, so if you put two and two together, it's obvious what they want. So it's just a really frustrating situation because I see how progressives were backed into a corner, and in endorsing Pelosi, they felt as if they would be in a better position expecting her to become the next speaker, which is likely. So, you know, I just hope that whoever is the next speaker, in spite of what they said about Pelosi in spite of their endorsements, they hold her accountable because she's proposing procedural rules that are really harmful, that make passing a progressive agenda impossible so long as she's speaker. And it's already impossible to get any policy we want codified into law, given that the Senate is still under Republican control and the White House is occupied by Donald Trump. But with that being said, now is the time to build a coalition and a consensus around progressive policy goals. And Nancy Pelosi, so long as she remains speaker, will be an obstacle to that goal. I see that progressives in Congress are trying to make sure that we don't worsen the odds by getting someone like Steny Hoyer. So it is what it is, but it's certainly um, a little discouraging, especially after all of the momentum after the election. So I really didn't think that this was possible, but the right-wing attacks on Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are getting more dumb and even more desperate by the day. 
Now, as you'll recall, last week, Fox News decided to poor shame her because she dared to complain about how difficult it was to get an apartment in Washington, D.C. before her congressional salary kicked in. But this week, a right-wing propagandist for the Washington Examiner is calling into question whether or not she's actually struggling as much as she says she is because he tweeted this out saying, Quote, Hill Staffer sent me this pic of Ocasio-Cortez they took just now. I'll tell you something, that jacket and coat don't look like a girl who struggles. So can we just take a moment to applaud Eddie Scarry's skills here? Because he's really breaking new ground when it comes to investigative journalism in America. So <laughs> congratulations, Eddie. You are truly putting in the time and effort to prove that you care about the issues, that you're going to get to the bottom of the biggest scandals in America. So, as you can see, they are calling it to question whether or not she's actually struggling, but hold, because we also got back to poor shaming her again, because CNBC and other outlets reported on her personal finances, believe it or not, and how she only has about $7,000 in savings. Yeah, this is a new scandal. So, they go from... Poor shaming her to saying she's not really poor, back to poor shaming her. How about this? Rather than looking into her personal finances, maybe that time would be better spent looking into the finances of, I don't know, the president of the United States. Just about a month ago, the New York Times released an expose confirming that he committed tax fraud. So the fact that that seems to be getting less play than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's personal finances is honestly baffling to me. But if you think it's stupid for them to focus on her personal finances, well, don't worry because they're going to move on to a different criticism. They're going to criticize her for misspeaking because as the Daily Wire's Ryan Saavedra points out, socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez misspoke. So this is a huge scandal. Let's go ahead and watch it so we can see this epic fail in action. Is that should we and if we work our butts off to make sure that we take back all three chambers of Congress, uh, rather all three chambers of government, the presidency, the Senate and the House in 2020, we can't start working in 2020. Wow, what a total loser she is for misspeaking. I mean, who misspeaks? What human misspeaks? Aren't we all perfect? Now, thankfully, he correctly points out that the three branches of government include the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. Good job. Thank you so much, Ryan. Had you not pointed that out, I wouldn't have known what the three branches of government are. Now, what I just find hilariously ironic is that these are the same people who say nothing about Donald Trump and all of his gaffes, and they like to lambast Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez seemingly because she's unintelligent. Fox News made the same criticism while they support a president who literally speaks at a fucking fourth grade level. And aside from that, he tends to say things like this from time to time. It was with the president of Finland and he said, we have uh, a much different, we're a forest nation. He called it a forest nation. And they spend a lot of time on drinking and cleaning and doing things, and they don't have any problem. And when it is, it's a very small problem. So uh, I know everybody's looking at that to that end, and uh, it's going to work out. Amazing. Care to decipher that for us, Ryan? <laughs> 
going to tell us what Trump is talking about there. You see, the problem with these MAGA chuds is that any and all gaffes that Ocasio-Cortez makes, they're the biggest scandals ever. But when Donald Trump says something stupid, then uh, let's go ahead and just not talk about it. Now, what's funny is that this became a big enough scandal that the former governor of Alaska and vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin, of all people, wrote an entire article about it on her website and poked fun at Ocasio-Cortez for, quote, fumbling basic civics twice in one statement. But coming from Sarah Palin, <laughs> this is a little bit awkward, and I think that the first reply pretty much nails it. Name 10 states. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, the man can only ride you when your back is bent. So strengthen it. Strengthen, strengthen it. it. But believe it or not, that's not even the dumbest attack on Ocasio-Cortez because we're going to reach peak stupidity when a Fox News host releases an investigative report about how Ocasio-Cortez has an Amazon wish list. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Um, now, let me explain. So, as you all know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is one of the few politicians in America that's speaking out against New York giving Amazon tax incentives to put one of their two new headquarter locations in their state. Now, what Fox News did is say, well, since she is an Amazon customer and has an Amazon wish list, well, then she's a hypocrite for criticizing Amazon. This is what they say specifically. And when we come back, you're going to see why it's so stupid and nonsensical. More on a bit of hypocrisy. Yes, hey, good morning. Uh, there are a lot of politicians opposing uh, the deal with Amazon coming here to New York City. Uh, politicians like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But according to the New York Post, uh, records show that both of their campaigns, in fact, use Amazon to order thousands of dollars in supplies. According to the Post, Ocasio-Cortez, her campaign spent about $10,000 on uh, in supplies on Amazon, also had an Amazon wish list, while Senator Gillibrand used about $2,000 uh, to buy supplies on Amazon. Now, a spokesperson for Ocasio-Cortez uh, told the Post that it isn't inconsistent for her to be an Amazon customer while opposing the, quote, corporate warfare, welfare, rather. Interesting. Yes. You got her. <laughs> Owned. <laughs> Wow. Uh, it's, I don't, I can't, like, it's, it's difficult for me to fathom that people think that Fox News is actual news. Now, as Parker Malloy points out on Twitter, this is basically a Matt Boris comic come to life because they're essentially arguing that if you participate in society, you're not allowed to criticize society. But this is not an argument that serious people make. We live in a capitalist system where exploitation is embedded into the system itself. You can't not participate in exploitation if you buy anything from the private market in a capitalist system. So if you couldn't tell by now, they are grasping for straws here. They are looking for any and every reason they possibly can find to attack Ocasio-Cortez. And what is the underlying implication? Why exactly are they so hell-bent on destroying Ocasio-Cortez? Well, it's obvious. She poses a threat to them politically. Because Ocasio-Cortez, she has so much enthusiasm and momentum behind her that 
you can't not see her as a threat. She's the future. She's bold. She supports policies that are populist that most Americans support. A federal jobs guarantee, legalizing marijuana nationwide, increasing the minimum wage, Medicare for all. These are policies that the American people support. So if you see that, you see the excitement and the energy around her, then obviously you're going to see how that poses an existential threat to you politically. So what do they do in response? Exactly what we expected them to do. Attack her and lash out. But what you're hearing are cries from dinosaurs who are realizing that their breed of politics is going extinct. And what we're witnessing is them trying to grapple with that fact. And really what we're seeing is cognitive dissonance because they're trying to imply that, oh, she's so stupid, she's so dumb, when in actuality they know that the opposite is true and they know that she's a threat, hence why they keep doing everything they can to smear her. So keep it up because you're giving me content and I like making fun of these idiotic right-wingers who think that they're somehow being clever for criticizing her for misspeaking or wearing a certain coat. I mean, it's just, it's, it's comical at this point. So a consistent theme on this show with regard to how Fox News covers Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that as they grasp and become more desperate to attack her for any and everything, <laughs> they're getting dumber. The attacks are getting more stupid and they're continuously lowering the bar. And after watching a segment on Laura Ingram's show, we have to lower the bar once more because the stupidity here is just... It's so outrageous that she's actually now comparing progressives in Congress <laughs> to a pop to apocalyptic <laughs> to apocalyptic figures in the Bible. Not even joking about that. Congresswoman elect Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, Ayanna Presley, and Ocasio Cortez tweeted out this picture of themselves at a progressive caucus orientation the other day. Check it out. They captioned the picture, squad, and another photo with the hashtag, change can't wait. Nancy Pelosi might have tagged this one, mob squad, help. Well, these women may as well be the four horsewomen of the apocalypse for the Democratic Party, if you ask me, because they represent some of the most radical views in Congress. Free college for all, free health care for all, the abolishment of ICE, a Green New Deal, where the U.S. depends entirely on renewable energy. Have fun in those planes. I mean, what do you even say to that? This is someone who we're supposed to take seriously. This is supposedly a serious news person who is an objective reporter. But let's get to that quote. What a gem. These women may as well be the four horsewomen of the apocalypse for the Democratic Party, if you ask me, because they represent some of the most radical views in Congress. <sighs> so, obviously, she's not necessarily saying that these women are so evil that they will bring about the apocalypse, but <laughs> in a biblical sense, but she's saying that they will result in the destruction of the Democratic Party. No, actually... They're going to save the Democratic Party. And see, the problem with propaganda, Laura, is that if you want it to be believable, if you want people to take you seriously, you've got to at least 
make an effort to appear somewhat reasonable and not be so ridiculous. But I don't think comparing these women to the four horsewomen of the apocalypse is going to legitimize your show. I mean, if you're going to fearmonger, you've got to at least try to keep it within the realm of possibility. But Fox News is desperate. Now, she called them radicals, as they usually do on Fox News, and I typically tend to push back against that view, but I guess that they are radical in the sense that they're doing something completely new in Washington, D.C. They're actually trying to listen to their constituents and represent the American people. That is actually radical, because we don't really live in a democracy anymore. We effectively live in an oligarchy, and you don't have to take my word for it. I'll cite the political science study from Princeton that was published in 2014 that I always cite. It's from Drs. Gillens and Page, and they found that American democracy has diminished to the point that we have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. So by them coming to Congress and actually trying to listen to the people and adopting policy ideas that are actually overwhelmingly popular, that is kind of a radical thing. But they're not radical in the sense that they're politically and ideologically radical because that's absurd. Now, she referred to free college, free healthcare, abolishing ICE and a Green New Deal as wacky new ideas. But when it comes to policy ideas like free college and Medicare for all, these are overwhelmingly popular. Laura, I don't think she realizes that Medicare for all is now polling with a 51% majority in her own party. So her own party doesn't think that this is a, quote, wacky new idea. And it's not really a new idea. Think about this. ICE itself is what's a new idea. We may not have the public support when it comes to abolishing ICE yet, but we've only started to make our case. And ICE itself is a new idea that I would characterize as wacky. ICE was created in 2003 by George W. Bush. We already have other agencies that took on the responsibility that ICE is now taking on. So, they're just unnecessary, and they're essentially the American Gestapo, so we don't need them. And when it comes to a Green New Deal, well, most Americans think that climate change is real and is a threat and that we need to act. So I don't know, like we haven't polled Americans specifically on the Green New Deal, but if we did poll them, I would imagine that it poll pretty well. Because what does a Green New Deal entail? It entails jobs, investment in green, renewable technology. If Americans want jobs and said Green New Deal would create jobs, then I would likely deduce that they would be in favor of that. Now, th the thing about Laura Ingram that makes it, I think, the most insufferable to me is that she tries to be quirky. She tries to be like that cool soccer mom who's witty, who's hip to what the kids are talking about, you know, who's down with the lingo, you know. She uses words like epic and owned. And she thinks she's funny and clever and cool, but the fact remains that Fox News' audience is overwhelmingly elderly. So even if they might think that you're clever, Laura, everyone else thinks that you're an idiot. You're not quirky. You're a racist, rich white woman who gets paid millions of dollars to espouse white supremacist propaganda and fearmonger about immigrants. You must be so proud. Imagine the legacy that you're leaving behind. Think about how history is going to judge you. 
So last week on the show, we talked about the waves that Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is already making by doing things like protesting in Nancy Pelosi's office or openly backing primaries against incumbent Democrats and advocating loudly for a Green New Deal. And if you're an incumbent member of Congress and you see what she's doing, but you also see the level of enthusiasm behind her, wouldn't you just instinctively think, I kind of need to do what she's doing in order to have the grassroots behind me. Maybe I should emulate her style of doing politics and do what she's doing. But no, they're not doing that. Instead, they're choosing to talk shit about her behind her back. As Anthony Andragna and Zach Coleman of Politico explains, veteran Democratic lawmakers are closing ranks against new members pushing the party to the left on climate change. Incoming chairmen say they want to address climate change, but they are bristling at the tactics of Representative-elect Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other newly elected Democrats who say the party needs to come up with a Green New Deal that would decarbonize the economy within a decade. The idea that in five Five years or 10 years, we're not going to consume any more fossil fuels as technologically impossible. Representative Peter DeFazio, who's in line to lead the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, told Politico, we can have grand goals, but let's be realistic about how we get there. Ocasio-Cortez is working with other liberal members and youth climate activists to expand the scope of a select committee on climate change that Nancy Pelosi wants to relaunch if elected speaker. But several Older members say they think even creating a new panel would be a distraction and could delay action by the existing committees with jurisdiction over the issue. Incoming Energy and Commerce Chairman Frank Pallone slammed the creation of a new committee during a closed-door meeting of Democrats Thursday, drawing pushback from Ocasio-Cortez at Representative-elect Joe Negus. Liberal environmental advocates torched Pallone for his opposition to the revival of the Climate Select Committee. Frank Pallone is concerned about holding onto his power and title, not about the future of our generation or human civilization, said the Sunrise Movement, which organized a protest at Pelosi's office earlier this week. If he were serious about stopping climate change, he would give back his money from fossil fuel packs and support the Select Committee for a Green New Deal, the only policy in history that rises to the scale of this crisis. And that's exactly the problem with people like Pallone. They'll come up with a reason as to why they don't support action on climate change. In this case, he doesn't support the creation of a committee on climate change, which is just the tiniest step in the right direction when he's taking money from fossil fuel industries. So is it the case that you don't think this is the best route or are you just corrupt and bought off by fossil fuel packs? Is that what it is, Frank? I think that you and I both know the answer to this. It's because he's corrupt. He's bought off. It's because we don't live in a democracy anymore. We effectively live in an oligarchy. And that's not me saying that. That's political science studies. That's a Princeton University study published in 2014 by Drs. Gillis and Page, who found that when you look at policy outcomes, well, normal citizens like you and I, we have a statistically insignificant impact on policy outcomes. But special interests... Large multinational corporations, they actually do have an impact on policy outcomes. Their policy preferences oftentimes dictate what policy outcomes we see. You and I, though, we don't get that. So the individuals who are, quote, bristling at Ocasio-Cortez here, they're just corrupt. 
And they don't like that she's putting them in this awkward position to where they're kind of forced to act and betray the will of their donors. Well, too bad. We don't care if you're going to offend your donors and you're no longer going to be able to take money from them. What we care about is saving the planet because we have 10 years to act according to the IPCC. And if we don't act, then I don't even want to think about the worst case scenario. But it wasn't just people who were pissed, who were against what Ocasio-Cortez is doing, because there were some other Democrats that gave, I guess you could say, very democrat answers. <laughs> and what I mean by that is just, you know, what you'd expect from Democrats, just a milquetoast, non-response, you know, paying lip service, patting people on the head, but really not wanting to do much. Quote, I have the same energy, I have the same urgency, but I think we need to have a conversation about how we do it, Representative Jared Huffman told Politico. It would help to sit down with those of us that have been here and have been working on these issues and want to team up and go big on climate because I think we have to be strategic and I think we have to function as a team. But it's a big team, noted Representative Henry Queller. He said the centrist Blue Dog Caucus expects to add six to eight members. He worried a climate change committee and goals like 100% renewable energy could turn off voters in swing districts at a time when Democrats would be unable to do more than pass, quote, messaging bills. A lot of the Republican seats that we won, a lot of them are moderate, conservative Democrats, and we have to keep that in mind. Those are the people I'm concerned about, Queller said. We can't go to extreme. Right, and what you're failing to realize is that we don't have a choice. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez didn't just arbitrarily come up with this 10-year deadline for us to act on climate change. This is what the IPCC is saying. They're giving us 10 years to act and saying if we don't act and significantly reduce carbon emissions within this period of time, within this next decade, then we will not be able to avert a climate catastrophe. But if we do act and take significant steps to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, then that will give us a better fighting chance against the worst of climate change. A Green New Deal is exactly what we need to get us on the right track and literally save the world. So to say, oh, we can't be too extreme, we don't have a choice. You're not doing enough. And if we wait on you, if we wait for bipartisanship, if we wait for everyone to come around and sing kumbaya and hold hands, humanity goes extinct. Waiting on Democrats is not an option for us because Democrats have shown that they are spineless cowards who don't have the willpower to act. They don't have the political courage to just do what they were elected to do, represent people. Most Americans want us to act on climate change. Most Americans want us to take action on other issues. Medicare for all, marijuana legalization, a federal jobs guarantee. I can go on and on, but you're not acting. So it's not just this issue. It's one issue that demonstrates how ineffectual Democrats are. So for them to just say, oh, we can't be too extreme and we need to do X, Y, and Z and this other committee could be better for us. Shut the fuck up. You're not doing anything. You haven't been doing anything. You had a supermajority in 2008. What did you do? Nothing on climate change. You passed a right-wing healthcare reform. That's your only major legislative accomplishment. So forgive me for not caring about what you have to say now that we have someone like Ocasio-Cortez in there who's actually willing to fight for us. She has the American people behind her. She's willing to be bold and do things that are unorthodox. Protest in Pelosi's office in order to demand action on climate change. And that's exactly the type of boldness 
that we need right now. We need leaders. You're not a leader. You are someone who is propping up the status quo, a status quo that doesn't represent average Americans, that is sitting idly by content as we destroy the planet, as, as we make our planet uninhabitable. So I'm sorry, your time has come and gone, and since you don't want to act, and since you failed to act when you had the time to act, now it's time for other people to come through and do what you refused to do. So either step aside or help Ocasio-Cortez, but bristling at her, quote, tactics isn't going to do anything. Since you guys are refusing to represent us, it's time we take bold steps because the climate can't wait. The climate doesn't play politics. The climate isn't going to wait for Democrats to get their act together. A Green New Deal is the only thing we got right now that can actually do what's needed to be done. So the fact that Democrats are poo-pooing something like a Green New Deal when there's this much momentum for it, it just shows why they're fundamentally incapable of representing the will of the people. And I say we primary every last one of them until they're all kicked out of office. But in the meanwhile, we're not going to back down because you guys have shown that you're incapable of doing what the people want. So now you can sit down and shut up. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been taking a considerable amount of heat this week from DC insiders and politicians because she's still insisting that it is important that we primary corporate Democrats. And for obvious self-interested reasons, they hate hearing her say this because now that she's part of the club, you'd think that she would want to close the door and lock it behind her. But she's still adamant about the need to have change in Washington, D.C. to elect grassroots progressives, to elect working class Americans. And in an interview with Chris Hayes on MSNBC, she explained her reasoning for still supporting campaigns like Brand New Congress and Justice Democrats. And I think that what she says here is not just perfectly reasonable, but it's fundamentally important. You, um, Justice Democrats, Justice Dems, which is a group that had sort of worked with your campaign early yes. on, um, you and they had sort of announced your plans to continue the process of primering incumbent Democrats, mm -hmm. which is how, of course, you got to Congress. Mm -hmm. I wonder, like, how that, how does that color the relationships you have with the incumbents there? Well, I think what's important to articulate what Justice Democrats is about is really it's not their mission. Their mission isn't we're going to primary Democrats. Their mission is we're going to support working class candidates to run in midterm elections. And so they have supported and endorsed candidates in red to blues, in open primaries. And but they do not shy away from uh, from actual primaries in, in blue races either. And so, you know, I don't I don't, I'm not sure if it really changes much because incumbent Democrats support and endorse against other incumbents all the time. You had Dan Lipinski earlier this year. That's what incumbency is. That is, <laughs> That's you know, being part of the club. And so, uh, so, but you have people that also support other primary challengers to incumbents as well. Like, again, you had Dan Lipinski this year where you have Kirsten Gillibrand, you have Pramila Jayapal that came in and said, we need change in this community. So I don't think it's anything uh, too out of... To, to, I don't think it's a departure from precedent at right. all. Uh, but I also think that we need to realize that, at, at least for me and what I tell my community, is that we don't, once we get elected to Congress, we don't own these seats. We rent them from our communities. And we have to make our case every single time. And that's not convenient. I'm saying this to you as, as uh, an incumbent to be. Yeah. 
Um, and I realize that that, that that means I hold myself to that standard as well, but I think it makes our democracy healthy. I really am thankful to see this new wave of progressive politicians arrive in Congress because they're giving me something that I haven't felt in a really long time. They're giving me hope because she is proving that she's the real deal. She's staying true to her principles and her values. Because Chris Hayes, you know, he implied in asking her the question, how do you think this is going to impact your relationship with other Democratic Party lawmakers? You know, implied that that would be something that impacts her relationship and might affect her ability to affect change within Congress. And she just didn't seem too worried about it. And she shouldn't be worried about it because even if it does impact her ability to affect change within Congress, it's still the right thing to do. And if we don't challenge corporate Democrats, then we will not get the change that we need desperately because they've already shown to us time and again that they're not willing to fight. So this level of boldness is exactly what we need. You have to take chances. You have to put yourself out there and maybe even make yourself vulnerable in a number of ways in order to usher in a new era of politics in Washington, D.C., and she's the start of that. Now, Ro Khanna is also demonstrating that he's bold as well. He's the type of leader that we need in Congress because you'll all recall he endorsed Joe Crowley and it wasn't a sweeping endorsement or anything of that nature, but he endorsed Joe Crowley, and there were a lot of progressives that spoke out and criticized him. I criticized him, but he came on my show, and he actually listened to us, and he said that he made a mistake, and he decided to then dual endorse Ocasio-Gortez and Joe Crowley, and there were reports that when he went back to the House, the very next day, he was chewed out on the House floor by Joe Crowley for choosing to be bold, but he did it anyway, even knowing that that would be the consequence. And that's exactly what we need. We need this type of bold leadership from progressives because this is what's going to actually get us the change. If you truly want Medicare for all, tuition-free public colleges and universities, part of that is making sure we do everything in our power to push the party in Congress currently to the left, but at the same time, we're gonna have to primary corporate Democrats who are refusing to budge. And we need people in Congress to understand how important that is. And we finally have people in Congress that get it. Now, I want to share a quote from Ocasio-Cortez because what she said here was just, it, it was... It was poetic. She states, once we get elected to Congress, we don't own these seats. We rent them from our communities and we have to make our case every single time. Now, I can't tell you how important this is because oftentimes somebody will feel as if they actually are progressive, but then when they get elected and they serve for decades and decades, well, over time, they tend to get out of touch they stop visiting the community that put them in office and they become this powerful incumbent that just clings to power and it's no longer about representing the community. And what she's saying here is that you need the consent to govern by your community. So if you're going to continue representing that community, then you've got to prove to them that you're still willing to represent them. And that's the truth. They need to prove to us that they deserve to be there. So I was really happy to see her say this on the mainstream media because prior to 2016, before Bernie Sanders decided to run, this type of unorthodox views about American politics and specifically Democratic Party intra-politics 
would have never been spoken about. You know, nobody would have said something like this. But now that we have people like Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders saying it, I hope that this will slowly but surely get the ball rolling because we we need change. And we need change pretty quickly. But, you know, I think that we're off to a pretty good start. And it's because of people like Bernie Sanders. It's because of people like Ocasio-Cortez, Pramila Jayapal, Ro Khanna, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, people like that who are willing to be bold. Um, and I'm incredibly thankful for them. Representative Ro Khanna and Senator Bernie Sanders are teaming up to do something that should have been done by Congress a really long time ago. They are finally taking on the greed of Big Pharma. So as Peter Sullivan of The Hill reports, Senator Bernie Sanders and Representative Ro Khanna on Tuesday unveiled a bill aimed at aggressively lowering drug prices by stripping monopolies from drug companies if their prices are deemed excessive. Sanders has long railed against drug companies for their prices, and this bill is one of the most far-reaching proposals aimed at lowering them. The bill would strip the monopoly from a company regardless of any patents and allow other companies to create cheaper, generic versions of a drug if the price for that drug is higher than the median price in Canada, the United Kingdom, Germany, France, and Japan. No other country allows pharmaceutical companies to charge any price they want for any reason they want, Sanders, who could run for president again in 2020, said in a statement. The greed of the prescription drug industry is literally killing Americans and it has got to stop, he added. Drug companies argue that other countries with price controls lack the innovation that happens in the United States. The bill does not have a clear path forward in the next two years, given that Republicans will still control the Senate, but the measure shows how far progressives want to go on drug pricing and comes at a time when there is growing momentum for taking some action on the issue, even if it might not be as far-reaching. President Trump has also focused on lowering the price of drugs, and Democrats hope to be able to work with him in a bipartisan way. Khanna, a progressive who represents Silicon Valley, joined Sanders on the bill. Quote, today we're sending Big Pharma a message. Market exclusivity is a privilege, and when you abuse that by price gouging the sick and aging, then you lose that privilege, Khanna said. So this is great. I couldn't be happier with what they're doing here. And I like how they're trying to throw in the word bipartisanship because typically when Democrats use the word bipartisanship, it means they're going to roll over and die and do whatever Republicans want. But when progressives tend to use the word bipartisanship, it means they're going to use what Republicans said in the past and what Donald Trump said in the past against them if they don't back their legislation. So I already know what Bernie Sanders is probably going to do. He's going to do what he did back in 2017 when he blew up a Trump tweet and brought it to the Senate floor and showed that Donald Trump promised to not cut Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, but went back on that promise. He can do that now because Donald Trump has vocalized support for the idea of lowering prescription drug costs. So this is really clever of them and I like what they're doing. It's bold, but I want you to pay close attention because once they introduce this bill, look at the co-sponsors on this particular piece of legislation and see who is and isn't supporting it. Those who aren't supporting it are likely beholden to Big Pharma because you've got to understand that the reason why we haven't already taken action here is because Congress is overwhelmingly corrupt and bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical industry who spends millions of dollars not just lobbying but making substantial contributions to politicians on both sides of the aisle. So pay close attention to who's supporting this and who isn't supporting this. 
any 2020 contender that isn't getting behind this legislation, they're inadvertently revealing to you that they're not the real deal. Pay close attention to Cory Booker, who already showed that he's beholden to Big Pharma before and only caved to what we want once he was shamed. Just pay attention, because this is really going to force people to show their cards. Are you with us or are you with Big Pharma? Is people getting their medication more important to you than those contributions that you're taking from the pharmaceutical industry? Show your cards, and they're going to have to do that. And I just know that they don't like that, because everything that Bernie Sanders is now introducing is getting media coverage. Prior to his presidential run in 2016, if Bernie Sanders introduced legislation like this, no media outlet would have talked about it. But since now, he may run for president. And since now, he actually has a significant amount of political capital and name recognition. What he does is pretty meaningful. It draws eyes to whatever cause he's promoting. So this is something that I'm sure Corporate Democrats are looking at and thinking, oh God, here he goes again. He's going to make us co-sponsor this and piss off our donors, you know, in the pharmaceutical industry. And I love it because if you're taking donations from the pharmaceutical industry, then nine times out of 10, if you're bought by the industry, you're going to do what they want. So this is definitely something that I am um, hoping can gain some steam I'm not under the delusion that this will get passed by a Senate that is controlled by Republicans, and I don't think that Donald Trump would sign this into law. I think he'd probably oppose it just because it came from Bernie Sanders, who may be his opponent in 2020, so he's not going to allow Bernie Sanders to take a win, and he's not going to take an L on this, but it's the right thing to do, and I absolutely give credit to Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna here for doing something and really just drawing attention to this issue, if nothing else, so... um. Yeah, this is definitely a huge step in the right direction, and I love that these progressive pieces of legislation keep getting proposed, because even if we're not going to pass them right now, you still have got to take the time to build a consensus around these ideas, to build a coalition of support for them, get co-sponsors, so that way when Democrats actually do take back government again, they'll already have, uh, you know, put in the groundwork necessary to get these codified into law, so I love it, and, um... Yeah, I wanted to share that with you because it's absolutely the right thing to do. In an interview with Al Sharpton on MSNBC, Bernie Sanders was asked the question that we've all been wondering about, especially since the midterm elections came to an end this month. Will he be running for president again in 2020? And his answer was pretty much the same answer that he's been giving <laughs> for the last couple of months. Will Bernie Sanders run again? And the answer is, Al, uh, I will make that decision uh, at the appropriate time. And, and I will be honest with you, your friend, uh, you know, we are we're looking at it. Uh, but it is a very it is a very it's an, a decision that impacts your family. And, and I want to make sure that when I make that decision, if I decide to run, that I have concluded, in fact, that I am the strongest candidate who can defeat Donald Trump. We got some great people out there who are thinking of running. They are my friends. Uh, and I've got to make that decision that uh, based on my background, based on my past, uh, based on my ideas, that in fact I am the candidate uh, that can defeat Trump. So but you're not, you're not ruling it out. You're saying you're no, seriously uh, considering it. That is correct. Okay, so I mean... 
it's about what he's been saying, but nonetheless, I would have liked to see an unequivocal yes. He's still looking at it, although he does add the caveat, it's a decision that impacts your family, and I want to make sure that when I make that decision, if I decide to run, that I have concluded, in fact, that I am the strongest candidate who can defeat Trump. Now, I think that by now he's probably came to a pretty solid conclusion as to whether or not he will run, but I do think that this is something that wasn't a foregone conclusion as soon as he ended his campaign um, in 2016 and learned that Hillary Clinton lost. I think that it was something that he had to think about because I don't think he actually wants to become president. I think that he's only choosing to run out of the feeling of duty to his country because he feels obligated to stand up and fight because he's the only person that can actually push a progressive agenda. Other Democrats have shown that when push comes to shove, they're willing to sit down and cower in fear to the establishment. Elizabeth Warren was someone that we all would have happily backed in 2016. But what did she do? Clear a path for Hillary Clinton and not challenge Hillary Clinton. And she also decided to remain silent during the primaries when Bernie Sanders could have pulled out a win in the state of Massachusetts. So, there are other progressives out there, but just they're not Bernie Sanders. And I think that he really is weighing whether or not there's going to be anyone who will challenge Donald Trump and remain unapologetically progressive and not sell out their principles and ideals. And Bernie Sanders says pretty often that, you know, you can't run away from your principles because you're running in a red state or a red uh, district or whatnot. You have to remain unapologetically progressive and you've got to expand the electorate. If that district in particular, hypothetically speaking, is trending red, then the reason why a Democrat hasn't won is because he or she has not been able to successfully get out the base. And Bernie Sanders is, I think, the only person in Washington, D.C. that understands this, besides a few newcomers like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. But I think that he's probably thinking about that and wondering if there's going to be any other progressive who agrees with that philosophy. That's pretty much just common sense at this point, but few people see it. So maybe he's thinking, well, would Elizabeth Warren do this? No, I think she'd probably listen to strategists. So I really do feel as if he is kind of weighing out the pros and cons. And I think he is genuinely conflicted about whether or not he will run. But with that being said, he's definitely going to run. <laughs> I don't think he wants to, like I said, but he's doing it because he feels as if he doesn't have a choice. Now, he was asked about what a hypothetical opponent to Donald Trump would look like ideally, and what he said was uh, exactly what I've been saying all along. What type of candidate do you think the Democratic Party and independents need to defeat the president if he's the candidate in 2020? I think you need a candidate who has can focus on, on in two ways, two approaches. Number one, we have got to deal with the ugliness of Donald Trump, his authoritarianism, his racism and sexism, and all of that. That has got to be dealt with. We are talking, Al, about the future of American democracy. I, I think you and I, uh, who have known each other for a few years, uh, would never have thought that in 2018, we really would be talking about the need to protect the fundamentals of American democracy right. from an authoritarian president. You know, we would have talked about health care or the environment or, or criminal justice, not about 
the fundamentals of American democracy and, and to protect those fundamentals against an authoritarian president. Obviously, you've got to deal with that. But second of all, going back to the work that you, know, you have done, Jesse Jackson has done, people have done over the years, we've got to bring our coalition together. That means working people who are black and white and Latino, Asian American, Native American, to demand that we have an economy and a government that works for all. Unemployment today is reasonably low. That's good. But there are tens of millions of workers today who cannot afford to take care of their families on 9, 10, 11 bucks an hour. 30 million people have no health insurance. People who can't afford prescription drugs. People all over this country are looking at their kids and see their kids are going to have a lower standard of living than they did. People who are worried about the potential horrors of climate change and what it will mean to this planet. Our job, Al, is to bring people together to do exactly the opposite of what Trump does. He's trying to divide us up. We got to bring people together around an agenda that works for all of us and not just the 1%. Yeah, so he is exactly right here. We need someone who's going to stand up to Donald Trump, but also simultaneously push for progressive policy ideals. Hillary Clinton tried to just be the anti-Trump candidate, and she learned the hard way that voters don't often come out and vote against someone. Maybe some voters do, but a lot of voters... They like to vote for something. That's what really galvanizes voters. That's what helps you to expand the electorate. So if you think you're going to be able to win and defeat Donald Trump simply by saying, I'm not Donald Trump, well, I hate to break it to you, but there's millions of Donald Trump loyalists who will get out and support him just because he's Donald Trump. So you can't just ride that anti-Trump wave into the White House without also offering a set of progressive policy ideas to go along with it. And I just don't think that Bernie Sanders sees anyone else in the field that's going to be able to do that. Now, again, not to keep name-dropping Elizabeth Warren, but she would have been the only other person who I think could have defeated Donald Trump. But I think she kind of proved to us all with the whole Native American DNA test thing that she doesn't have the first clue how to effectively take on Donald Trump. And she ended up making a fool of herself and actually pissing off Native communities in the United States. So if she face-planted before the election even began, how would she fare against Donald Trump? Could she beat him? I think she could, but she would take a heavy beating, and I just don't think she's equipped to fight Donald Trump as effectively as someone like Bernie Sanders. I want someone who's going to go up against Donald Trump who's actually going to be able to beat him, who's going to have the best chance of beating him. It's not Joe Biden, and I really don't think it's any corporate Democrat. It's got to be someone who's progressive, who will excite the base and get millennials outvoting. And that person is Bernie, and I think that he sees it, and I think that he knows he's going to have to step up and run because nobody else is going to be able to do it, and nobody else has the progressive chops that Bernie Sanders has or the name recognition or the popularity at this point. So even though I do think he doesn't want to run, I think he ultimately will decide to run because what else do we have? You know, we, we don't have anyone who's as progressive as Bernie. Nobody can excite the base like Bernie. So it's, it's going to be Bernie. It's got to be Bernie. It's becoming increasingly clear that President Donald Trump's response to Saudi Arabia's murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi will ultimately be, eh. Because even if we didn't have evidence that the Saudi crown prince was directly involved from the start. 
I don't think it would have been unreasonable to suspect that he was in some way culpable here. And now that the CIA has reportedly confirmed that he ordered Khashoggi's murder, as most of us suspected, now Donald Trump is faced with a question. What do I do? Do I take action? Do I punish them? And maybe just do the bare minimum and cut off the arms that we're selling to them? Do I choose to do sanctions on them? And it seems as if he's choosing to do absolutely nothing. As Nicole Gawet and Caitlin Collins of CNN reports, President Donald Trump signaled Tuesday that he will not take strong action against Saudi Arabia or its crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman, for the murder and dismemberment of Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi. The White House has been struggling to square a widespread sense that the crown prince directed the killing with a desire for Saudi support for its foreign policy priorities and the need to manage close relationships between bin Salman, the Trump administration, and members of Trump's family. In an exclamation mark laden statement, subtitled America First, Trump said on Tuesday that our intelligence agencies continue to assess all information, but it could very well be that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. Speaking to the press later in the day, Trump cited the kingdom's influence over oil prices and said, if we abandon Saudi, it would be a terrible mistake. He also said that he was not going to destroy the economy of our country over Khashoggi by giving up arms deals to Saudi Arabia. And in addition to essentially admitting that he's not going to do anything, he took the time to go on Twitter and actually thank Saudi Arabia. I'm not kidding about this. Saying, quote, oil prices getting lower. Great. Like a big tax cut for America and the world. Enjoy. $54 was just $82. Thank you to Saudi Arabia, but let's go lower. So for an administration that hilariously at this point still tries to pretend as if they give a damn about human rights what he's saying here is that we're not going to take any action even the bare minimum we're not going to do even that we're not even going to stop giving saudi arabia bombs that they're using to bomb school buses in yemen with we're not even going to do that they're going to be able to kill journalists with impunity, and that's that. Now, what message th does this send to other dictatorial countries and authoritarian regimes that tend to do things like this? It says that if they commit similar atrocities, then Donald Trump will give them a pass if there's some type of economic relationship between the United States and their country. That's absolutely disturbing, and the international implications of this are downright devastating, right? It says that the United States government doesn't give a damn about human rights, and it was already an open secret that the United States doesn't care about human rights. All you have to do is look at what we're doing in Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and you'll see that we don't give a damn about human rights. But to still maintain that you care about human rights, and to actually allow Saudi Arabia to get away with this and do absolutely nothing, it shows that you're drawing a line in the sand. You no longer are even going to pretend to care about human rights. Now, in typical Trumpian fashion, he randomly tweeted today in all caps, America first. And Tulsi Gabbard immediately responded by pretty much obliterating him, saying, Hey, real Donald Trump, being Saudi Arabia's bitch 
is not America first. So make no mistake about it, the gloves have come off. Because the United States' relationship with Saudi Arabia to this point, it's indefensible. We are supplying them with arms that they are using to kill innocent civilians in Yemen. And when they gave us a very good reason to cut off all ties with them by murdering a journalist, we're still choosing to not do anything. So to say that he's Saudi Arabia's bitch is pretty accurate. And I absolutely commend Tulsi Gabbard for calling him out like this. I have a feeling that she's going to be tone policed by pundits in the media who are going to say, oh, you know, you can't call the president a bitch. This is so unbecoming of our democracy. And what about decorum? No, I think that what matters is taking a stand and taking action when we're doing the right thing. Words don't matter. Words don't mean shit in this situation because Donald Trump is showing that we can just sit idly by and allow Saudi Arabia to kill journalists, to commit murder. And when we have evidence that the Saudi crown prince is culpable here, is directly involved in this murder of a journalist, you know, we're still not going to do anything. So if you're going to tone police Tulsi Gabbard about this, think about what really is more appalling here. Now, I'm not saying that the media is going to tone police her or, you know, fiend outrage, but it wouldn't surprise me. You know, that's how bad our media is. Now, Donald Trump was also criticized by someone else who hit back pretty hard. So he decided to attack comedian Michelle Wolf for hurting his feelings at the last White House press correspondence dinner, saying so-called comedian Michelle Wolf bombed so badly last year at the White House correspondence dinner that this year, for the first time in decades, they will have an author instead of a comedian. Good first step in comeback of a dying evening and tradition. Maybe I will go? And she responded by saying... I bet you'd be on my side if I had killed a journalist. Damn. So he's absolutely getting torched for this, and it is well-deserved. Because if you're going to be the president of the United States, if you're going to claim to care about human rights, then you've got to at least put in an effort to maintain that facade. But, I mean, the mask is off. He's declaring to the world the United States officially does not care about human rights. We don't care about freedom of the press. And if one of our allies commits an atrocity and murders a journalist, we will do nothing because economic interests are more important. Oil is more important to us than a human life. And then human lives in Yemen, because that should have been the main catalyst that should have gotten the United States to move away from our relationship with Saudi Arabia. But that didn't do it. This won't do it. So oil's more important. Um, the profits of defense contractors and the defense industry is more important to Donald Trump. And this is what he's communicating to not only you, but the world. And it's absolutely morally reprehensible. The Washington Post released a report about Ivanka Trump that reveals how she used her personal email to conduct official government business. In other words, she pulled a Hillary. <laughs> Makes sense. 
So as Carol Lonig and Josh Dossie of the Washington Post report, Ivanka Trump sent hundreds of emails last year to White House aides, cabinet officials, and her assistants using a personal account, many of them in violation of federal records rules, according to people familiar with the White House examination of her correspondence. White House ethics officials learned of Trump's repeated use of personal email when reviewing emails gathered last fall by five cabinet agencies to respond to a public records lawsuit. That review revealed that throughout much of 2017, she often discussed or relayed official White House business using a private email account with a domain that she shares with her husband, Jared Kushner. The discovery alarmed some advisors to President Trump, who feared that his daughter's practices bore similarities to the personal email use of Hillary Clinton, an issue he made a focus of his 2016 campaign. He attacked his Democratic challenger as untrustworthy and dubbed her crooked Hillary for using a personal email account as Secretary of State. Yeah, so this is definitely an interesting story. And look, is there a similarity to this story and the Hillary Clinton email server story? Absolutely. But to be fair to Ivanka Trump, there are some key differences. For one, Hillary Clinton did in fact set up a private email server, which is unprecedented. And additionally, she deleted thousands of emails before handing over the rest of those emails to the FBI. So to be fair to Ivanka, this isn't necessarily the same thing. But the reason why the FBI was investigating Hillary Clinton was to determine whether or not she sent or received classified emails while using her unsecured personal email account. And since Ivanka Trump also used her personal email to conduct official government business, I think it's also fair to say that we need to evaluate whether or not she inadvertently sent or received classified information as well. Now, I will say this, the likelihood that Ivanka Trump inadvertently sent or received classified information using her unsecured personal email account is probably low when juxtaposed with Hillary Clinton because Hillary Clinton was the Secretary of State. So if you're exclusively using your personal unsecured email to conduct business on behalf of the United States government, odds are you're going to end up sending or receiving emails that are classified. Now, that's not necessarily likely going to be the case with Ivanka Trump, but it still begs the question, why would she use her personal email for official government business? And that's where the similarities with the Hillary Clinton case really come into play, because the question is, what is Ivanka Trump trying to hide? Why do you think that Hillary Clinton wanted to use her personal email to conduct official government business because maybe she was trying to hide some conflicts of interest between her State Department and the Clinton Foundation. Maybe she wanted to hide those pay-to-play deals. She wanted to make sure that her personal email wasn't subject to FOIA requests. Now, it's also the case that there's a conflict of interest with Ivanka Trump because she has a clothing brand that personally benefits her. And conspicuously enough, on the day Trump met with the Chinese president, trademarks for Ivanka Trump's clothing brand were conspicuously approved. So it wouldn't be surprising if we learned that Ivanka Trump, like her father, used her position of power to personally enrich herself because we all know that the Trump family is notoriously corrupt. So we can also deduce that maybe 
Ivanka Trump wanted to use her personal email account so that way any business dealings that conflicted with her government work and her clothing brand wouldn't be subject to FOIA requests. Maybe she could hide that corruption away. Now, I don't know, but what I'm saying is that if we want to be consistent and hold Ivanka Trump to the same standard as Hillary Clinton, then at a minimum, as Senator Blumenthal puts it, there should at least be some type of investigative effort into Ivanka Trump because she may have received or sent classified information. There may be conflicts of interests that she was trying to cover up. And really, there should just be an effort to determine whether or not she's guilty of some wrongdoing. She may not have broken any laws, but that's why there should be an investigation. Now, in the event the FBI does conduct an investigation into Ivanka Trump over this and concludes that there was some sort of wrongdoing or illegal behavior here, Ivanka should be indicted. That's the obvious and reasonable conclusion because we shouldn't live in a two-tier justice system. I'll say the same thing now that I said back when Hillary Clinton was under investigation. When peasants like Brian Nishimura are prosecuted for illegally transmitting classified emails, but people like Hillary Clinton or possibly Ivanka Trump get away with it, that's not fair. Now, certainly there are some differences here that doesn't make this as problematic as Hillary Clinton setting up her own server to do official government business. But at the same time, is this a gigantic red flag, especially seeing that there's already this conflict of interest with Ivanka Trump and her clothing brand? Absolutely. So I'm asking conservatives who were vocal, rightfully so, again, you were right to call Hillary Clinton out for this, to join me now in calling for an investigation into Ivanka Trump. Because this isn't just important as a matter of justice but principle as well because if you're going to hold hillary clinton to a certain standard and accuse her of breaking the law which she did technically then you should also be equally critical of others who do something similar to what hillary clinton did so will conservatives join me in calling for an investigation into ivanka trump (laughs) (laughs) didn't think so Individuals within the so-called pro-life movement are really starting to show their cards as of late because if you'll recall, about a month ago at Politicon, Kyle Kulinski easily exposed Michael Knowles of The Daily Wire, who claimed to be pro-life, yet vocalized his support for the death penalty. And similarly, lawmakers in the state of Ohio are demonstrating just how pro-life they are by making it possible that a woman could receive the death penalty if she has an abortion. This is the state of the pro-life movement in 2018, folks. So as Casey Quinlan of Think Progress reports, Ohio Republicans are considering a bill during the lame duck session that would redefine and ban abortion and potentially punish people with severe criminal penalties if they perform or undergo an abortion, according to local public radio station WOSU. The bill, HB 565, was introduced in March and is currently awaiting consideration in the Health Committee. From fertilization to birth, the quote, unborn human would 
would be included under the definition of person in the criminal code, the measure also redefines abortion to mean the purposeful termination of a pregnancy by any person, including the pregnant person, any method including but not limited to chemical methods, medical methods, and surgical methods. That definition does not include the unintentional termination of a pregnancy, but it's unclear how a pregnant person would prove intention should they and their physician's actions come under scrutiny. There are no exceptions for rape, incest, or danger to the life of the pregnant person. Under the Ohio bill, a pregnant person or abortion provider could be subject to criminal charges, including the charge of murder. They could face life in prison or the death penalty. The bill includes a provision that says the pregnant person can avoid these consequences in criminal or civil court if they are willing to be part of a hearing, provide information to investigators, or make a report. But this does not apply to healthcare providers, Forming abortions. According to WOSU, the bill is not expected to pass this year, but it is a sign of how far Republican Ohio lawmakers are willing to go in their support of anti-abortion policies. Ohio Governor John Kasich signed a 20-week abortion ban into law, but vetoed the heartbeat bill. Kasich has vowed to do the same again should this bill pass, but state lawmakers may have enough votes to overturn his veto. Yeah, so at this point, they are becoming comically draconian. These are authoritarian level laws. These are not laws produced by egalitarian modern societies. These are laws produced by theocrats. And put simply, as Jill Filipovic states, they're so pro-life, they'll kill ya. So this is what lawmakers in Ohio are choosing to focus on. Rather than protecting people who are already born and living in their state and providing them with expanded access to health care and education and housing, they're choosing to make sure that every single fetus is born no matter what or they might kill you for it. Rather than protecting lives that are already born, they're choosing to fight for the unborn and prioritize their lives. Now, Listen, I get that after a certain week, once the fetus becomes viable, once it starts to develop a nervous system and it can feel pain, I think a lot of us feel very uncomfortable with an abortion in those instances. But that's not even controversial because most abortions occur long before that. And these so-called pro-lifers claim to care so much about life, but once the quote unborn human is born... They're going to deny that person dignity. They're going to deny that person civil rights and civil liberties. But so long as it's born, that's all that they care about. We are reaching levels of The uh, Handmaid's Tale. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that show. It's a Hulu uh, exclusive. And essentially, they're living in an authoritarian version of America where a right-wing theocratic extremist group overthrew the American government. And these are the types of laws that they produce, and hence the, you know, the them dressing up as handmaids. But um, that's essentially <laughs> what these Ohio lawmakers want. So I don't have much to say. I just wanted to share this because I think the story demonstrates just how far to the right the Republican Party has shifted. They're so pro-life that they'll kill you. It's not about pro-life. It's about being against abortion. And if they really wanted to stop abortion, then what can they, they do to 
decrease the number of abortions. Well, they can expand access to contraception. They can actually support sex education that isn't abstinence only. But I mean, they don't want to do that. They want to have their cake and eat it too. So it, it's just, it's com it's comical, right? This is a joke. And I hope this is defeated. It's obviously unconstitutional. But with this current Supreme Court, maybe they want to pass this bill so that way it does make its way to, to the Supreme Court. And maybe... They'll have to reevaluate Roe v. Wade and strike it down now that there is a firm conservative majority on the court. I don't know, but it's a joke. And this is a demonstration of how extremist and fascist the Republican Party has become. Back when Ajit Pai was trying to convince us that a repeal of net neutrality was in our best interests, do you remember the main argument that he was using to justify his repeal of net neutrality? He claimed, and he repeated this over and over again, that net neutrality, Title II net neutrality, hurts broadband investment. Now, we all pushed back against that because behind closed doors, you know, these internet service providers were assuring their shareholders that this wasn't going to hurt their bottom line and also investment increased. So here's why <laughs> I had to talk about this story. Ajit Pai's main reason for repealing net neutrality just blew up in his face in an unbelievable way because since he decided to repeal net neutrality guess what happened investment actually decreased <laughs> congratulations you played yourself so as carl bode of tech dirt reports you'll recall that one of the top reasons for killing popular net neutrality rules was that it had somehow killed broadband industry investment of course a wide array of publicly available data easily disproves this claim but that didn't stop fcc boss ajit pai and isps from repeating it and in some cases lying before congress about it anyway we were told more times than we could count that with net neutrality dead sector investment would spike. You'll be shocked to learn this purported boon in investment isn't happening. A few weeks ago, Verizon made it clear its capex would be declining and the company's deployment would see no impact despite billions in tax cuts and regulatory favors by the Trump FCC. Trump's tax reform alone netted Verizon an estimated $3.5 billion to $4 billion. A recent FCC policy order purporting to speed up 5G wireless deployment in part by eliminating local authority over negotiations with carriers netted Verizon another $2 billion and that's before you even get to the potential revenue boost thanks to the repeal of net neutrality and elimination of broadband privacy rules. Ironically, Verizon's dip in CAPEX came right on the heels of the wireless industry and Ajit Pai in perfectly coordinated unison trying to claim that a CAPEX rise in 2017 was directly due to the repeal of net neutrality. They ignored an important point. However, net neutrality wasn't even repealed until June of this year. If this endless roster of favors was to impact network investment, accelerate network deployment, and unleash a magical wave of innovation, that should all be happening right now. And yet, the opposite is happening. And of course, it's not just Verizon, AT&T, and Sprint here are also reducing overall CAPEX. Sprint, Verizon, and AT&T have all reduced their overall CAPEX numbers for 2018. The operators cite a variety of reasons, from timing issues to more efficient network technologies. But the 
ultimate result is the same. Where there was once excitement, now there's a decided sense of pragmatism. Now, there's a number of different reasons for this, including some cost savings in moving from legacy hardware to more efficient virtualization technologies. But again, a decline is not what was promised ahead of the sales pitch for the tax cuts and the attack on net neutrality. The nation was, time and again, promised unrivaled innovation and investment boosts if the nation's companies received a multi-billion dollar tax cut and net neutrality and other regulatory underbrush was cleared out of the way. That didn't happen. Instead of investing all these tax breaks, perks, and savings back into the network, they were pocketed by investors and executives, which, for anybody with half a functional brainstem, was the entire point of having a former Verizon lawyer running the FCC in the first place. This is a long-standing trend in telecom. Promise the public the world if they get tax cuts, subsidies, and blind deregulation, then avoid doing pretty much all of those things while pocketing the savings. Perhaps some Someday, America will actually learn some kind of lesson from the experience. The main reason why Ajit Pai cited the need to repeal net neutrality was because it was hurting investment, and he repeals net neutrality, and then unfortunately for him, investment declines. Now, is the decline in investment a direct result of the repeal of net neutrality? I don't necessarily think so. I, I just don't think that investment and net neutrality are correlated in any way. There's no cause and effect relationship or certainly no direct cause and effect relationship. So I don't, <laughs> this is really a bad look for Ajit Pai. And I feel as if this is such a big story, perhaps the biggest story since the repeal of net neutrality itself, that every single media outlet should be talking about this because this is gigantic news. The logical conclusion, if we lived in a democracy, would be, okay, we, we tried it your way. We tried this experiment where we go without net neutrality, and not only did investment decrease, but it's already the case that just months after the net neutrality repeal, there are reports of ISPs throttling certain websites, namely their competitors. So it's unfathomable to me that we can continue with this facade that Repealing net neutrality was about more than anything but just giving millions upon millions, actually billions of dollars technically, to these internet service providers. So that's really all that I got to say about this issue. I just, I couldn't not share this story because those of you who have been following along with this story for the past year, you know that this is huge because Ajit Pai, after saying this so many times, now he's having to eat those words. But Will he even acknowledge this? Absolutely not. He's not going to acknowledge this. He's going to pretend like everything is PG Keen and that his repeal of net neutrality is working out his plan because in actuality it is. It's doing exactly what he wanted. Now, he may not have explained to you why he was personally in favor of repealing net neutrality, but we all know deep down that as a former and possibly future Verizon employee, he was doing this so that way Verizon can get billions and billions of dollars. And Ajit Pai has delivered in a way that perhaps no other FCC chair in recent history has been able to in terms of giving the industry money. I mean, think about how insane that is. He's supposed to be regulating the industry, but his policies are resulting in billions of dollars for Verizon. In terms of consumers and um, protecting us, we get none of that with the Jeet Piaz FCC. So this should be a scandal. And if we lived in an actual democracy and not an oligarchy, 
there would be impeachment pre proceedings for Ajit Pai immediately. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen. And I think that this story is largely going to be ignored by not just the mainstream media, but people in Congress. But it shouldn't be because this is a huge story. Well, that's all that I got for you guys today. Thank you so much for tuning in. As usual, if you've made it this far, I want to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors for helping the show to survive and thrive as well. I will see you all next week. Happy Thanksgiving. Take care.